Hi, it's Mark Sisson. Welcome to the Primal Blueprint Podcast. It's time for another show dedicated to the world of keto. Check out ketoreset.com for details about my New York Times bestselling book and send your questions to info at ketoreset.com. It's time for another keto show. Hello, everyone. This is host Brad Kearns. How are you? We have a little glitch whereby I don't have a ton of questions compiled. So send your questions to info at ketoreset.com and we will have a proper Q&A show in the future. Today, just going to do a little update, a little freestyle, a little freestyle rap because I put myself in a trap. Didn't have too many questions, so it's time to offer some reflections. Been thinking about keto dietary strategies overall quite a bit lately, talking to a bunch of my enthusiastic, healthy, living friends of a similar age group, that being the 50 plus, and our desire to keep going, man, keep things strong, don't sag and drag into the steady decline that is old age. Been working on this keto longevity book with Mark Sisson and trying to convey a comprehensive approach to living long and living awesome. Uh, Why are we covering the topic of longevity? Because we've pretty much said everything we can possibly say about the nuances and the particulars of the ketogenic diet, particularly with the keto reset diet, that multi-stage approach where you prepare yourself properly to go keto rather than jump into it. So, Freestyle wrapping here. I've been having some other reflections. One of them is uh, the benefits of being zoned in and focused on a particular dietary strategy to promote health is you kind of eliminate that uh, impure and unhealthy influence of modern culture where we have the indulgences and the temptations and the marketing forces pushing us to consume products and engage in behaviors that are uh, unhealthy. Uh, you know, you're tempted by dessert, by the dessert tray. And the waitress even says, can I tempt you with the dessert tray? It's like, come on. Yes, of course you can tempt me because we all know the instant gratification that's provided by dessert. But when you have a uh, higher principle operating, like a, uh, a stated goal and commitment to yourself, boy, that really helps you navigate uh, potential pitfalls and places where you can lose focus. And what's interesting to me is that, uh, as you might have heard on reports from shows over the previous months, I was talking about my experiment with increased caloric intake and going with the green smoothie in the morning rather than fasting until noon every day as I did when I was deep into my keto experiment while Mark and I were writing the first book in 2017. And so, Uh, By loosening the purse strings and allowing myself uh, more access to healthy, nutritious food, I report good results with uh, exercise performance and recovery. So clearly there's um, some individuality here and there's some strategy whereby if you're deep into keto and you're also trying to achieve uh, magnificent athletic feats and recover quickly from strenuous athletic workouts, uh, there's a way that you can possibly compromise your performance by regulating your appetite so well that you under-consume nutritious calories. Dr. Tommy Wood talked about this in his shows, so go listen to those. Uh, but 
we first have to decide uh, kind of what category we're in with our keto goals. And if you're trying to drop excess body fat, you have a different set of decision-making parameters to someone who is simply trying to perform, recover, and has good body fat numbers, good blood work. There's no uh, issues to correct or to address. So myself being in the latter category, I have enjoyed the experiment of more free-form caloric intake, uh, but some things have come into play, and I wanted to share those with you. And one of them is like having more freedom and less structure, uh, particularly the idea that I didn't have to fast until 12 noon anymore. So if I was around family, friends, and there was a big breakfast being consumed, or I was purposely going in and making this super-duper green smoothie with all these ingredients inside, you can look on YouTube uh, Brad Kern Super Nutrition Green Smoothie, and I show you all the stuff I put in. Uh, Dr. Rhonda Patrick Smoothie puts this one to shame because she throws in an entire farmer's market of produce um, and blending it in stages so that more stuff can fit into the blender. So I've tried to put in more greens than I show uh, on the video because I got that magnificent insight that, oh, if I blend up an entire blender full of kale, then I can fit more stuff in there. Yeah, so I'm putting in stuff like MCT oil, uh, creatine, L-carnitine, and glutamine. Those are helping old guys recover from uh, heavy lifting and intense sprinting. Also using the supplemental ketones, which I'll talk about uh, a bit more. But back to this idea of more freedom and flexibility with your food intake, uh, it's kind of interesting because when you eliminate those restrictions, uh, I think we can get carried away very easily. So I'm going to report getting carried away with like my evening popcorn binges and uh, greater intake of my all-time favorite dark chocolate uh, throughout the day even or later into the night than normal or maybe earlier in the day than normal because I'm no longer fasting until 12. So I might see a chocolate bar and grab a square. And not that I had a disastrous health consequence, but I was realizing from a psychological perspective how difficult it is to you know, align with your stated dietary goals when your stated dietary goals are a little bit vague or open-ended. So then I'm reflecting back to my conversation, many conversations with Brian McAndrew, mastering the audio recording. So I'm having a conversation with him right now. Uh, but on his show that we published, he was talking about uh, how when he just agreed or decided to uh, go keto, he eliminated all non-keto foods from his decision-making process. So they basically ceased to exist in his mind. And it's a very powerful mindset to adopt to not have that decision fatigue, not have that constant application of willpower where the waitress comes by and says, can I tempt you with dessert? And the answer is no. And I use the other comparison of uh, the peanut lady coming down the aisle on Southwest Airlines. The only thing that's negative about Southwest Airlines, the greatest airline, greatest company, is they're sticking peanuts in your face. And you have to actually say no to not receive one. Uh, but if you have a peanut allergy, uh, the the decision or the fact that uh, a decision is hitting your brain is not going to happen because you're allergic to peanuts. Now, we all know that we're allergic to gluten in some way, shape, or form. The severe folks are known as celiacs, and they have instant uh, horrible, disturbing reactions to consuming gluten, but all of us are gluten intolerant at some level. Uh, many people are on a subclinical level where they don't realize that that minor gas bloating 
digestive disturbances after meals seems to be normal. We've experienced it our whole life. Mark Sisson talks about in the Primal Blueprint where his entire life he thought that was normal and routine to have these digestive difficulties. When he was a runner, he thought it was normal to lose control of his bowels at some point on the training run, and he had to plan his runs around strategic bathroom locations. And a great many runners believe this to be normal and routine. Oh, because running pounds so much and it's really tough on your digestive tract. Well, wait a second. What about if it's the gluten in your diet that is the primary driving cause of having digestive difficulties while doing a high-impact sport like running? Back to the ancestral health example. Do you think our ancestors were having such troubles when they were jogging along the savanna doing a persistence hunt against the antelope? Don't think so. So we could very likely all benefit from implementing some strategies and some guidelines and standards for our diet rather than being open season and knowing as you're driving along the freeway and see a sign for a fast food restaurant and you're kind of hungry on a road trip, realizing that you are allowed and open to go participate in that kind of uh, ingestion of toxic poisonous food. You're allowed until you're not, because they will serve anyone. They're 24 hours a day. Uh, So are the convenience stores with whatever junk is in there. So, boy, it's really nice to put some standards in place. Furthering the example with Brian, we have a recent show I did with William Schufelt, the carnivore shredding dude. And he gave some great uh, insights about not just the carnivore diet, but how to achieve goals and peak performance, and work backward from your end goal step by step. Very interesting for such a young guy who's locked into a very effective goal-setting strategy. But in regards to the carnivore diet, say what you want about it. Maybe we should learn more about it. It seems to be pretty legit and giving some incredible relief uh, to people who have been suffering from autoimmune conditions. But also what struck me as interesting was by narrowing the decision-making parameters further, especially if you're pursuing a goal like dropping excess body fat, oh my gosh, what a fast track to success because you have such a limited choice of foods, your chances of success with a body fat reduction effort are going to increase just because you've limited the choices. And those are healthy, nutritious foods. No one's going to die going 30 days on the carnivore diet. Uh, William was saying that he was eating uh, eggs, uh, red meat, and fish. Same with Dave Cobrine. He was uh, a guest of mine on the Get Over Yourself podcast. Listen to that show. A lifelong, healthy, living peak performer, trying to do the best he can, be the best he can be, doing some blood tests and experimenting with the carnivore diet. And he was uh, spending a lot of money on the high quality food, getting the best grass fed steak and the wild cut salmon and the pasture raised eggs. Uh, but for 30 days, he stuck to just those foods. And Just to be able to accomplish that type of journey, I think, uh, translates to success and uh, more focused mindset in many other areas of life. So back to me and my uh, loosening of the purse strings, I'm now locked into a plan to go back for a brief period of time. I'm going to put a number on it like 30 days where I'm going to fast until noon every single day and adhere to ketogenic dietary guidelines, particularly eliminating the 
slippery slope of evening popcorn fests, which are so enjoyable. And I've had so little exposure to that type of binge eating over the past 10 years since I went primal that I have a tendency to overdo it. I'm eating like a third of the bowl before I serve it to other people and just stuff in my face in the kitchen. So just as a personal challenge and a way to recalibrate and dial things in a little better, I'm announcing this on the air. And also getting pumped up with a couple of my childhood friends to work together and support each other uh, with some uh, enhanced athletic goals. Getting the six-pack back because it sometimes slips a little bit when you're in your 50s, man. So we talked about narrowing your decision-making parameters so you don't have that decision fatigue or that uh, constant application of willpower just to get through the day and turn down the fast food options or the dessert tray. And then secondly, having some accountability and some group support is a big deal. It's a big factor for success to be working through these challenges together with people around you. Uh, There's some amazing research on clusters from the vaunted Framingham study, the longest and largest epidemiological study in history. That means a study of how uh, lifestyle, diet, environment affects health over the long term. And these are residents of Framingham, Massachusetts, starting in 1948. They've been tracking the lifestyle behaviors of these folks and coming up with some profound conclusions that have shaped medical science and dietary progress. Uh, especially the conclusions in recent years that we highlight in the book Primal Blueprint uh, from study director Dr. William Castelli talking about how uh, saturated fat intake and cholesterol intake are not correlated whatsoever with heart disease. Uh, Stuff like that, giving support to uh, the ancestral style diet rather than the long uh, conventional wisdom, the long run in conventional wisdom for the deeply flawed uh, grain-based high-carbohydrate diet that has made the the United States current population the fattest uh, in the history of humanity. So other interesting stuff emerging from the Framingham study is this concept of clusters. In 2007, researchers from UCSD and Harvard called the Framingham data to reveal that obesity is socially contagious up to three degrees of separation. They also found that there are other clusters, such as for thinness, happiness, positive emotions, and general life satisfaction. All these things are contagious up to three degrees. Wow. So your surrounding environment has a profound influence on your success or failure, even your uh, happiness level, Uh, but especially with things like diet as we're trying to focus on that. When you get uh, support and encouragement and uh, similar behaviors from people around you, you have a much better chance to succeed than people making negative comments, even if they're flippant and funny. Oh, here's this guy. Look at him. He's not having any of the rice. Oh my gosh, that chips away at your resolve and causes trouble clustering of negativity. Clusters for obesity trip out. So three degrees of separation means that it's you, uh, your friend, and your friend's friend. There's your three degrees, just like the Kevin Bacon exercise. Uh, You may have heard motivational types uh, offer this quote that you're the average of the five people you spend the most time with. Tony Robbins spouting that. He got that from his mentor, Jim Rohn, the old-time motivational speaker. And there's actually some scientific support for that. 
there's a psychologist at Harvard named Dr. David McClellan. He suggests that the people you habitually associate with, he calls this your reference group, determines up to 95% of your success or failure in life. He studied these groups over a 30-year period. So, if you're hanging around people who are high-achieving, high-income-earning, uh, interested in cleaning up the planet and uh, uh, volunteering in the community, that's going to be your uh, uh, vortex that you're going to get sucked into. Conversely, if you're hanging around people who like to commit petty crimes, uh, eat crappy food, uh, boy, oh boy, uh, the influence of your peers are tremendous. They say for um, child-rearing in the adolescent years that the peer group has vastly more influence than the parents, and the parents' uh, character and who they are has much more influence than what they say. So, wow, stuff floating around in the air, and you think it's just all about you, but really it's about getting that support, getting that encouragement, hanging around people that make you feel good, that engage in good, healthy lifestyle habits that you believe in, that align with your, you align your stated goals with your actual behaviors, that creates happiness, behaving in a manner incongruent from your stated goals, creates pain and suffering. But, 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 behaving in a manner incongruent with your stated goals and experiencing that consequent pain and suffering, and then commiserating with other people in your reference group that do the same damn thing, alleviates some of that pain and suffering. We can't call that a bad thing, straight up. People, humans like to commiserate. That's part of our basic nature. Oh, but when things get toxic and discouraging and all you have is that minor satisfaction or that band-aid experience of uh, noticing that all your friends are going to heck with their physical (laughs) body and adding dress sizes or adding waist inches, at least that's carrying you through, that's not a good way to live. And instead, you can break out of these patterns by becoming aware of them and taking a stand in the name of your health and inspiring others around you. Everything is contagious up to three degrees. So whatever cluster you're in, if you can be the person that's the outlier right now, if you have to be, and say, you know what? Um, I'm canceling the popcorn binges because I was always the guy that made the popcorn. I always make this beautiful presentation with the melted butter and then doubling up and sprinkling uh, uh, the lemon-flavored olive oil on top of that. You got the real salt shaking that in there, and it's pretty damn delicious. But I was the instigator and the promoter and you know, delivering this wonderful gift to uh, whoever's around to indulge with me. So if I'm shutting the door on that, I'm going to have an influence on my cluster. Fun stuff. Everyone's going to feel good because we're behaving in a manner congruent with our stated goals all together now. How about that? You know, I've talked about my uh, cold plunge, my enthusiasm for cold plunge. I did a complete full-length hour-long show just talking about cold therapy on the Get Over Yourself podcast channel, so go listen to that thing. Uh, But 
there's all these hormonal benefits. You jump into cold water first thing in the morning. You get a norepinephrine boost of 200 to 300% that lasts for an hour. So you're alert and energized and focused. And it's a great morning ritual. Uh, increase oxygen delivery, blood circulation, all that great stuff. But I'm realizing now that I've been locked into this for, let's see, I think about two years now. Without fail, every single day, of course, when I'm in my home environment, I jump into cold water. Look on YouTube for the video, Brad Kern's Chest Freezer Cold Plunge, and I have a 15 cubic foot chest freezer. You usually put meat in there. Uh, I filled it up with water, and I plug it in and have it on a timer running two to three to four hours a day. So I keep the water at 34 to 38 degrees Fahrenheit. And I jump in there, hold my breath for a bit at first, and then emerge and commence a cycle of 20 deep diaphragmatic breaths. And it takes me four to five to six minutes to complete the breath cycles. I've built up over time, started about three minutes, so I can stay in there comfortably. Again, I'm not shivering or suffering in there. I'm overcoming that autonomic nervous system response to start shivering and freak out uh, and have a panic reaction when I jump in the cold by focusing on my breathing and making this a routine so I become more and more skilled and adept at it. So there's these physical benefits that I mentioned briefly, but also I feel like this has a profound psychological benefit to to help me become more focused and resilient to all manner of stress throughout the day. Especially, let's draw a correlation between me being able to discipline myself to go downstairs first thing in the morning and jump in that water every single day compared to how well am I going to do disciplining myself to work on the book rather than pop over to uh, the text message application or the email inbox. So when we can put these things into place in our life and actually uh, be, be proud that we can uh, stay aligned with the goal of doing it every day, that I can overcome any aversion I have to it. Because when it's pouring rain outside and it's early in the morning and cold and you're going to go jump into cold water, it might not be the most pleasant idea if you had to ask yourself to motivate for it. So I'm trying to override even motivation and just do this as an automatic behavior. Another big enthusiast is Tony Robbins and he says that it's his mind telling his body what to do. His mind wills his body to jump into the tub without a second thought or without having to reason through it or apply willpower to the issue. It's just an automatic behavior. Brushing your teeth, buckling your seatbelt in the car, things that we do without thinking. We embed them into our subconscious programming so that they can easily play out. And I think it has a lot of benefits. So I'm trying to pull this point together. This has been kind of a fun rambling show, as I promised at the outset. But if you can do things like, hey, for the next 30 days, me and my buds are going to get together and here's some tips and tricks and some dietary strategies. Uh, one of my friends who's in the, in the pact here is uh, not any association with primal paleo keto. So I'm just telling him to cut out his sugar for 30 days. And meanwhile, some other guys who have been on this road for a while, we're going to uh, adhere to the ketogenic guidelines. In my case, ditching that uh, that popcorn binge. And I'm also going to bring back the fasting for the, for the sole reason that I want to have that growth experience of uh, abstaining from food until 12 noon. Okay. 
Am I going to be okay with my incredible workouts and sprinting and being able to recover? Yeah, I think so. And there's a lot of hours to eat once the clock strikes 12. I don't want to cross over that healthy boundary and start to get, uh, I guess you could call it orthorexic about it or, you know, bringing in uh, too many negative emotions or negative energy toward my food choices. So I want it to be relaxed and natural and comfortable, not forcing things to happen because I think if you start obsessing about about the clock striking 12, and then you give yourself permission to eat, that can get into those unhealthy emotional connections to eating. So this is just trying to be a free-flowing, natural occurrence where I apply a little bit of uh, intentional mindfulness to uh, a dietary transition from the absolute free-for-all that I've uh, plunged into over the past several months and back to a little bit of structure and discipline. So I don't know, folks, does that help? And does the correlation between the morning cold plunge as applied to the example of diet or, for example, the desire to drop excess body fat, does that resonate? I mean, if you want to drop excess body fat, you have to create a caloric deficit, right? The step-by-step process is to first get healthy, Oh, I love that override from the folks at Nourish Balance Thrive. Let's not even talk about an effort to reduce excess body fat until you become metabolically healthy. So if you have leaky gut because you've been eating gluten for the last 33 years or whatever, we want to tighten up those tight junctions in the intestinal tract so that we're not leaking uh, unwanted foreign particles into the bloodstream and stimulating an autoimmune response and compromising fat burning if we are consuming high polyunsaturated vegetable oils in the diet, which also cause dysfunction to healthy burning of stored body fat. We have to ditch all that stuff out of the diet before we try to lose weight. Otherwise, we're just going to go into fight or flight mode when we attempt uh, a weight loss effort, a caloric restriction effort. So number one, get healthy before you talk about weight loss in any way. Number two is get good at burning fat. So that means minimizing insulin production from the diet. Most of us in any semblance of standard American diet are experiencing wildly excessive insulin production, which locks fat away in storage, rendering it inaccessible. And that's why you get the tired, cranky afternoon blues when you go so much as to skip a single meal. So if you're one of those people that can't skip a meal very well or gets really super hungry in the evening after work or any of these symptoms that indicate dysfunctional or subpar fat burning, first we have to work toward that goal of getting good at burning body fat. And that means doing by any means necessary, avoiding the high carbohydrate intake in the diet. So as discussed in the Keto Reset Diet, if out of the gate this requires you to ingest a lot of high-fat meals and snacks, which seems to be a super popular way to go in the keto scene these days, where there's all kinds of uh, packaged foods now that are uh, touted as keto, and you can stuff your face all day long and dribble in all these uh, things that are going to keep you in fat-burning mode hey, we're going to say that's okay out of the gate. So if you have to have a giant omelet every single morning in trade for your cereal bowl, as I've reported on previous shows when I went primal cold turkey in 2008, 
I had this giant cereal bowl that I ate every single morning dating back to my days as an athlete, a triathlete, where we had to stuff our face with calories before we headed out the door to train for hours and hours. And I just basically swapped that out for a giant six-egg omelet with a whole bunch of sautéed veggies in there and sliced avocado and salsa on the top and melted cheese. And so I pounded this huge meal every single morning as soon as I woke up. And that took about nine to 12 months for me to transition over from this lifelong high-carbohydrate eating pattern, and even more so than the average person because I was such a high-calorie burner for many of those years that I was inhaling carbohydrates all day long, I had to transition over to that high-fat meal, which would nourish and satisfy me for several hours so that I was not tempted to unwrap the energy bar at 10 a.m. like I had done for many years previously after that big cereal bowl. And then my lunch of whatever with the uh, a burrito wrapping or other carbohydrates going down the pipe and getting locked into this pattern of requiring a lot of energy throughout the day just to sustain uh, focus, mood, uh, cognitive performance. So transitioning over over to becoming fat adapted required a big intake of high fat foods such that I would not be tempted to slip back into a a carbohydrate consumption event to boost energy. Now, after 9 to 12 months of shoveling down this giant omelet, I recall This is back in 2008, 2009, so a long time ago, but I recall waking up certain mornings and realizing that I wasn't uh, terribly hungry for the omelet anymore because I had started to upregulate my fat-burning machine very nicely, and so I could give or take the omelet. So I kind of transitioned away from the obsessive omelet intake morning into a more fluctuating pattern where, yeah, maybe I'd still make the omelet uh, several days a week, whatever, a few days a week. Other times I would fast and explore that wonderful world of uh, compressed eating window, intermittent fasting. Other times I would throw in things like uh, dark chocolate smothered and almond butter, and that would be my first meal, first intake of calories at 10 a.m. or whatever, 11 a.m. It was all going into uh, fractal intuitive, which was great progress from the obsessive regimented intake of high carbohydrate meals, followed by the obsessive regimented intake of high fat meals. So wherever you are on this continuum, working toward that ultimate goal of dropping excess body fat, make sure that you get into the fat burning zone without question where you can skip meals easily or consume high-fat meals and sustain your energy for hours afterward without requiring the carbohydrate boost. Then what you can do is, as Mark Sisson likes to say, his punchline at live events, the seminars, when he's talking about this topic, you can choose to get your next meal off your plate or off your butt and thighs, your choice. And that is the essence of successful reduction of excess body fat, is being able to effortlessly transition from a high-fat meal to taking the energy off your body and carrying on because your body literally doesn't know the difference between where they got those fatty acids to burn in the bloodstream, right? But the interfering factor is that insulin spike that comes from those high-carbohydrate meals. But if you just want to close your eyes and plunge in and say, I'm not going to eat any more carbs, even though I've been eating them for decades because I want to go lose weight and do this keto thing, all kinds of hell is going to break loose. 
your fat-burning genes are not upregulated yet, and they don't like an abrupt transition from the preferred fuel of the previous decades of glucose from dietary carbohydrate. So what happens when you go on a crash keto experience is you activate the fight-or-flight response to supply the glucose you need to fuel your ravenous brain. Remember, the brain weighs uh, 3% of your total body weight, 2 to 3%, except for mine's 3.5, but for most of you, 2 to 3%. Just kidding. That's a joke. Uh, the brain weighs a few percent of body weight, and it burns 20 to 25% of your daily calories. Whew, and it doesn't burn fat, so you have to rely on glucose entirely for your brain until you get keto adapted and then you can start burning ketones and you can also burn lactate which is a a little bit of a scientific complexity that i've just become aware of recently so i should also mention that and then the scientists can uh, nod their heads in agreement and not send me an email like dude what about lactate but let's say the brain is glucose dependent for purposes of our argument and if it doesn't get what it needs It's going to go into emergency mode because that droop in energy that you call the afternoon blues is a fight or flight, life or death threat to our primitive brain. Because in primal times, we can't get sad and droopy and tired when we are uh, starving and need to go find food or when we're getting chased by a predator, right? So the brain is going to get his sugar or her sugar any way any means necessary, and that will typically be through fight-or-flight-triggered gluconeogenesis. That is the conversion of amino acids from lean muscle tissue or from diet, but if you're in this fight-or-flight mode because you're dieting, you're trying to restrict calories, lose weight, you're going to activate fight-or-flight and be in this high-stress mode frequently because you're not supplying your brain with the calories that it's used to from years and years and years of having regular bouts of carbohydrate meals. Interesting, huh? So instead of dropping excess body fat and smoothly and effortlessly feeling great as you transition over to keto out of nowhere, you're just going to be in high-stress mode. What's funny about this is you might very well feel great for three weeks or five weeks or eight weeks. Oh my gosh, look, you look great. You lost weight because you're losing uh, water retention and inflammation when you uh, restrict those inflammatory carbohydrates, sugars, and grains. So you will have that initial burst of weight loss, especially if you're a highly inflamed person that's highly reactive to carbohydrates. So you're going to have good news out of the gate. You're going to look different. You're going to lose waist sizes. You're going to take pictures for your social media. But what's going to be happening behind the scenes, underneath the surface, is this overstimulation of the fight-or-flight response to continue to supply glucose to your brain. And yeah, because you're making a dietary transition, you might lose some excess body fat too, but this is not an authentic approach that's sustainable. And then what will happen when your fight-or-flight mechanisms become exhausted is you will hit crash-and-burn mode. You will experience fatigue, mood swings, energy level swings, profound cravings for carbohydrate, perhaps. These are all symptoms of fight-or-flight exhaustion. I'm very familiar with this condition because this is what extreme chronic training endurance athletes do to themselves over and over is overstimulate the fight-or-flight response through extreme training. 
feel great for a while. I remember going on these six-week bouts of like superhuman training where every day I woke up, I felt fantastic. My legs tapping under the table at breakfast, you know, when you're kind of a little jittery and wired on stress hormones, whether it's because you're facing a personal crisis or deadline pressures at work when you're really locked in and you're not even hungry sometimes because you're running on fumes and you're too busy and nervous to eat, whatever's whatever's happening in your life that's putting you into chronic uh, overstimulation of the fight or flight response, you do have that wired frenetic energy for a sustained period of time. And then when the plug is pulled, man, it's no good. And generally what happens with uh, the biggest loser type person who's going into that extreme diet and exercise mode for six weeks, dropping a bunch of pounds, is through this fatigue and exhaustion and a profound, intense cravings for uh, carbohydrates and generally over-consuming calories as a way to recover from this high-stress, high-depletion period, you're going to overeat and you're going to be more likely to store those calories as excess body fat as sort of this recalibration, these hormonal mechanisms that try to get you back to baseline and restore your energy. Restore your energy. Get it? Get it? Right. So, We don't want to do high-stress dieting. It seems to be very common in the keto scene because it's an abrupt transition from even a a, a paleo, low-carb-ish style lifestyle. It's a pretty big jump to get over to uh, that 50 calorie per day, 50 gram per day uh, carbohydrate intake limit, and therefore it can become stressful. So we want to back up a bit. That's why we do this uh, step-by-step approach in the Keto Reset Diet where you have the 21-day metabolism reset where you're ditching grains and sugars, you're getting your exercise, your sleep, and your stress management practices handled so that you can be in that stress-balanced mode as you pursue a long-term dietary transformation. So you get the reset going, and then you have this fine-tuning period where you see how you're doing from that hard work that you did for three weeks. And if you have the ability to, let's say, uh, delay your first meal until 12 noon, so we're going from 8 p.m., let's say, until 12 noon the following day, so you can comfortably achieve a 16-hour fast without experiencing any downside such as appetite stimulation or uh, crankiness, moodiness, cognitive decline. Everything's wonderful and natural and normal. And then you comfortably sit down to your first meal. It's not a binge ingestion of calories because you've been suffering to try to make it to the, the clock strikes 12. So when you can comfortably fast until 12 noon, that's when you've shown... Uh, an indication that you are ready for uh, a stint of nutritional ketosis where you're uh, uh, carefully adhering to the stated macronutrient guidelines of keeping your protein uh, in the moderate level of 0.7 grams per pound of lean body mass per day and limiting your carbs to uh, 50 grams per day. Do it the right way, then you can have lifelong success. If you can complete a six-week stint of nutritional ketosis, you have done a powerful rewiring of your appetite, your metabolic, your fat metabolism hormones, your leptin signaling to the brain, uh, your ghrelin, the regulation of the prominent hunger hormone that tends to spike wildly when you're in those high-carbohydrate eating patterns. So you're basically a person who can regulate 
their energy very, very well with or without regular meals. You can go into a fractal, spontaneous, intuitive eating pattern like I described it myself, within limits, <laughs> because we want to keep some of those guidelines in and uh, strike a nice balance uh, between uh, complete freedom and having some restrictions and guidelines to keep us honest. Whew, how does that sound? Hey, go for it, people. Do the best you can. Tighten things up. Be a spokesperson and an influencer in your reference group because your progress is contagious up to three degrees with your friends and family and loved ones. Thank you for listening. Go check out ketoreset.com. Got lots of great resources there. Sign up for the course. Thanks for listening this long to the recording. And thereby, I'm going to give you a special bonus, which is a 20% discount on your course enrollment just by entering the code BRAD20 at ketoreset.com and taking the Keto Reset Mastery course, guiding you through every step of the way with videos, audios, written material, everything you need to succeed. Do it right. Do it once and for all and enjoy a long life of metabolic flexibility, which is pretty much the key to longevity, as you'll find out soon with our upcoming book. Have a great day. So Chris Kelly, Nourish, Balance, Thrive, we're, we're talking about health and you're telling me a funny story about your picky four-year-old daughter that won't eat unless there's Primal Kitchen uh, condiments on the table. It's true. My daughter will not eat unless there's f***ing the primal kitchen wilder. <laughs> it's, it's this cute thing, actually, she does. We have a local state park called Wilder Ranch. Oh, yeah. And uh, she calls the ranch dressing Wilder Ranch dressing. <laughs> we, 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 there's no way we're going to correct her on that. It's just too perfect. It's so, so endearing. Uh, how old um, is she? She's four. Oh my god! So she likes like the mayo on. A oh yeah, she so she loves those. Sort of, we love them as well. We have uh, we we eat them all the time. We eat the mayo. We eat the balsamic. We eat the the ranch. Um, the avocado oil we use all the time, and, and so you know that's completely genuine. And I don't mind talking about that because you took the pain in the ass out of condiments. I really appreciate that. What an authentic spot from Chris Kelly at Nourish Balance Thrive. And yes, Primal Kitchen, you can call it Wilder Ranch Dressing if you want. And uh, we'll send five cents of the proceeds over to that beautiful state park because they're, they're trying to make ends meet in Santa Cruz Mountains. Thank you very much, Chris. <laughs> this is my pleasure.